trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, each uh, each weekday I am here doing my part to, uh, you know, disperse truth and knowledge and hopefully a little bit of understanding of the world around us and uh, to fan away the fog of misinformation. And about once a week, I get some help when our friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com drops by to administer a reality supplement. Eric, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Brian. I saw the uh, the wrong thing signal in the sky, and so I, I, I shimmied down the bat pole, and here I am. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to catch up with you, Eric. You know, one thing that you and I have never had to worry about in the whole time that we've had these conversations is a lack of things to talk about. And, yep. and to, 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 today's no exception. I want to start with something that I know is uh, front and center in a lot of people's minds, and that is the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. The yep. jury is in deliberation. We, we probably will have a verdict. I'm guessing we could have a verdict as early as, as this morning. Give mm-hmm. me some of your thoughts as you have watched this, uh, this spectacle unfold. Well, I'm amazed that there even is deliberation, given the facts of the case, which were actually on video and fairly incontrovertible, and also given the incredibly incompetent manner in which the prosecution prosecuted this poor kid, uh, though the day was saved by the prosecution's own witnesses who came forward and said, yeah, I I think he said, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but, uh, yep, I do think he feared for his life because I was pointing a gun at him. Didn't he? He said something. Thing to that effect. He was asked, uh, so, so is it, uh, he, he was asked, uh, Mr. Rittenhouse did not shoot you until after you pointed your gun at him. And, and to which the, the guy said, correct. Yeah, <laughs> right. So at this point, if this kid is convicted of anything, it will tell us that we live in Soviet America and that these courts might as well be uh, ruled by uh, the notorious Soviet Judge Vazhinsky, where he said, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. Uh, No fair-minded person can look at the evidence in this case and conclude that this kid did anything but exercise self-defense in a horrible situation. And the fact that this trial was even brought to trial is itself outrageous. And Alan Dershowitz, now this is how bad it is, Alan Dershowitz, who's a lefty, has come out and said the whole thing is a farce. And that if Rittenhouse is, is convicted, that it will be a profound miscarriage of justice. I've actually seen a couple of different commentators make the point, and I think credibly make the point, that uh, this is about the right to self-defense, not just Kyle's, everyone's yeah. right to self-defense. And in a broader sense, it's actually, uh, it's about uh, trying to, uh, the, the, all the pushback against Kyle is trying to, uh, to, dis- to cover up the damage he's done to the narrative that nobody needs an AR-15 to protect themselves. Right, right, a- absolutely. And in particular with regard to the obligation to attempt to retreat that obtains in many states. I don't know how it is where you are, but in Virginia... Uh, if you have a concealed carry permit, for example, which I do, um, you have an obligation if a situation develops to attempt to retreat. In other words, legally speaking, you can't even exercise the self-defense, uh, right to self-defense, unless you've attempted to get out of the situation first. So there's that on the table as well. Uh, it, is a, it is a bellwether case for what's going to happen. And in a way, much as I feel terrible for this kid who's being put through all of this, I think it's going to be a good result in the end because it is so egregious, and I think it will establish in law 
that people do have a right to defend themselves when confronted by a thug carrying a weapon who clearly intends to shoot you with it. Amen, bro. I, I'm with you. And, I, you know, I, I don't think that uh, that pointing out what, we, what we're pointing out here in any way amounts to celebrating the fact that uh, two people died, another was grievously wounded. But, but it does point out that if the authorities are going to sit back and allow this kind of thing to happen, at some point the responsibility of the citizens to protect themselves and protect their community is going to have to be exercised. Well, without question, and I think anybody who actually watched some of uh, Kyle's testimony are well aware that he's shattered by what he had to do. Sure. You know, he, he's not somebody who was gratified that he ended up killing two people. You know, he was put in a position of having to kill two people, which is a horrible position to be put in. None of us want to hurt anybody ever, and we hope that we can go through our entire lives without ever having to point a gun at somebody, much less having to pull the trigger on somebody. But sometimes you don't have any choice, or rather the choice is to be killed or to defend yourself. And I think it's very clear that that's what's at issue in this case. Yep. The the choices he had to make were not because of decisions that he made. They were decisions that were forced on him by the violent, predatory behavior of others around him. Sure. And I think most fair-minded people get that. Most people understand that, to scale this up a little bit, you know, you're in your house, you're in bed, uh, you hear the window break, you go to check it out, and there's some guy in your house with a gun or a knife. You've got a right to defend yourself. You're walking down the street and somebody attacks you or comes at you with a knife or a gun. You have a right to defend yourself. This is probably the most profound and also the most readily, instinctively understood human right that there is. Well said. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, some of the, the vaccine stuff that's going on. Um, Austria has begun its uh, its lockdown of the unvaccinated now. They officially have a two-tiered society, Eric. Yep. There, there's the clean and there's the unclean, and apparently it's pretty tough to live in Austria if you are among the unclean. You know, the greatest response that I've seen so far to that was in a tweet where somebody typed, Austria, isn't that where Hitler came from? Oh, <laughs> bam, <laughs> drop the mic. <laughs> yep, exactly, and it's absolutely spot on. These sorts of measures are beyond the pale they 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 are you know the the nazi thing is sometimes uh, resorted to too quickly and and perhaps overused but it is absolutely applicable in this case Um, they are anathematizing uh, an entire class of people who harm nobody at all and they're fomenting mass hysteria against these people who harm nobody and they're excluding them from society they are economically disfranchising them Um, they are socially ruining them and what's the next step? You know, you, you're willing to do all this to these people. Well, why not herd them into boxcars? Why not cart them off to camps? Why not do the next thing after that? It follows logically. And that's why this is so incredibly horrible and incredibly dangerous and has just got to be stopped. You and I were talking before we jumped on the air here about uh, there, there's also the aspect of why don't we hear more about some of the adverse reactions that are coming about as in, in response to the vaccine? People who've received the vaccine, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, the, the heart problems, uh, myocarditis, uh, pericarditis, yep. um, these are happening in young people. Yeah, we do hear about it. We just don't hear it on CNN. Gotcha. You know, it's astonishing that. Uh, the almost weekly incidents of this sort of thing happening, including specifically to healthy elite athletes, including NBA players, NFL players, elite soccer players, uh, athletes of all types. These are young guys, young women in their 20s who are at an extremely high level of fitness. And all of a sudden they're developing life-threatening heart problems, and this is being normalized. 
you know, before this whole situation developed, if you went back a few years, if you heard about a 26-year-old professional athlete who developed uh, a, a catastrophic heart problem, that would be big headline news, and people would go, wow, that's, that's crazy, that's really unusual. And in, in every, almost every case of that sort of thing happening, it would be one of two things. It would be an undetected genetic anomaly that they had a problem that they were born with. Or, uh, as in the case of Len Bias, you might remember him from back in the day. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, drugs. The guy, might have been, you know, the guy might have been snorting coke and had a heart attack as a result of that. But by and large, healthy young athletes don't get myocarditis and pericarditis, and now they do. And so do healthy teenagers, coincidentally all of whom have been recently jabbed. Hmm, I wonder what the correlation might be. Now, you also mentioned to me, though, there's a very curious deflection from the vaccine and an attempt to blame it on something else that's causing these heart problems. What might that be? Yeah, this whole thing gets more and more absurd with each news cycle. So now they're attempting to correlate the smoking of the evil marijuana Mm. with heart problems. You know, that's the reason for it, because all these states have decriminalized marijuana, and so as a result of that... Uh, we're seeing an uptick in heart problems. Of course, the, the marijuana that's now available is legal, heavily regulated, and its dosages uh, uh, strictly, uh, strictly under various forms of government control, whereas you know, back when I was in high school and you were in high school, you got the, you got the stuff from some guy <laughs> right? out in the parking lot. And uh, you know, nobody I know who smoked pot uh, ever got heart inflammation, heart disease, or any other such kinds of uh, crippling maladies from smoking the marijuana. So it's obviously just another of these increasingly preposterous attempts to blame shift and change the discussion and to do anything other than talk about, hey, you know what? These vaccines, there, there might be something bad about them, and maybe we should stop and think about it and reconsider shooting up the entire population with it, particularly kids of all things. Right. Well, you know, but when in doubt, let's invoke the ghost of Henry Anslinger and his reefer madness, you know, to keep a little fear sure. in people's hearts. Sure, exactly. It's, it's the damnedest thing that, you know, the, it, it vies in my mind with the other development of the last week or so, which is these aging rock stars like Gene Simmons of Kiss and Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister, who are coming out and characterizing those of us who've been reluctant to be injected with these dangerous drugs as evil people. Yeah, let's come back to that subject here on the other side of the break. Okay. Because I, you know, my moral shortcomings need to be pointed out by my <laughs> former rock gods. So, uh, yeah, I'm anxious to yep. hear their take. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. I do have a link to his website in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We are having our weekly conversation with Eric Peters from epautos.com. And Eric, as we, as we went to break, you were mentioning that uh, a couple of uh, big rock stars, former big rock stars, have, uh, have weighed in on the vaccination issue. Tell me, what, uh, what exactly does Gene Simmons of Kiss and uh, Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister have to uh, inform and enlighten us on this situation? Well, uh, Gene in particular uh, characterizes those of us who have not been jabbed and who don't want to be jabbed as evil and that we should be set apart, segregated, identified. Those were almost his exact words. I've got the exact quote in my article up on the site about that. And I find this fascinating because Gene Simmons, let's, let's start with the fact that Gene Simmons is really Chaim Witz, who was born in Haifa, Israel. So he's Jewish. 
and his mother was a Holocaust survivor. So the irony of this guy, whose family was persecuted uh, as an entire class of people and characterized as a dangerous bacillus that had to be disinfected, the irony of this guy characterizing a whole class of people as a dangerous bacillus who needs to be disinfected is just, it's, it's halting, it's striking that he would do such a thing. Uh, and this was amended by D. Snyder of Twisted Sister. And as you and I talked about a little off the air, the, the secondary irony is these guys uh, took great umbrage back in the day when they were uh, uh, big rock stars um, at parents who said, wait a minute, you guys are peddling bad values to our kids. You're encouraging promiscuity. You're encouraging drug use. You're en- encouraging dabbling in occult practices and Satanism and all that sort of a thing. And they, they said, no, no, we're just musicians. We're just playing our songs. Uh, we have no responsibility for what your children do. And these are the guys now who say that it's our fault that people are getting sick. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one to swallow. In fact, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling with, with that idea. Now, uh, there's a quote that, that uh, you attribute here to, to Gene Simmons. So he yep. said, you're not allowed to infect anybody just because yeah. you think you've got rights that are delusional. Yes. Holy cow. Of course, well, of course, nobody is asserting anything of the kind. None of us are asserting a right to infect anybody. What we're asserting is a right to not be presumed infectious. You know, we take issue with that. We take issue with being characterized as separating disease spreaders. We're not. It's the whole thing. It's the same thing you and I have been talking about for the past two years, this, this presumption of harm where no harm has actually occurred, which gives an open-ended license to control people because after all anybody might do anything right sure sure i i saw a meme the other day that i, I thought was especially appropriate and you've i'm sure you've seen the kermit the frog taking a sip of his lipton tea you know it's always you know it's always something pretty pithy this one really struck home though because the the caption says if your vaccine doesn't protect you how is my vaccine going to protect you it's brilliant right exactly I mean, it's even more idiotic than this whole idea that I should wear a raincoat to keep you from getting wet. Exactly. I mean, the, the raincoat doesn't even keep me from getting wet. Well, the, the pressure is real, though. And, and you know, the, the mandates, even though I think it was the, the Fifth, uh, just the fifth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals put a yep. stay on the Biden uh, or the OSHA yep. mandates, uh, nonetheless, it sounds like Biden's administration was telling businesses, go ahead and implement them. And um, it, it doesn't seem like the juggernaut has slowed all that much. Well, it hasn't slowed in terms of what Biden is determined to do, apparently, but I do think it's slowing. We have got uh, a number of cases that we can look at uh, to support that. For example, I don't know if you, if you caught it, but up in Oklahoma, the commanding general of the National Guard has openly defied the government. And now this is you know the, the military and said that he will not require any of the troops under his command to be uh, vaccinated contrary to their their will. That's quite something. And and that sort of thing is spreading. Uh, You've got the walkouts around the country. You have got the fact that lots of people now are quitting their jobs rather than be jabbed. And that's that's having its effect, of course, on the supply chain. But it's also very telling in that people are willing to put themselves through great economic tribulation because they don't want to die. You know, they don't want to be injected with some some un, unknown provenance, untested drugs that are being peddled by these, these known-to-be shady pharmaceutical companies. You can dig into the facts about Merck and Pfizer and all these companies who in the past have had to pay enormous sums in, in, in liability damages for the, the harms that their products have caused. 
who have now been immunized. That's the one thing they did do. They immunized the drug manufacturers from the consequences of what their products do. And by the way, another shady thing, they have subtly changed the definition of what it means to be vaccinated. Yes. It once meant that that meant you were immunized against whatever the, the supposed sickness was. Now it's simply that the symptoms are reduced. Now that is quite something, uh, particularly when we go back in time a little bit and remember when they used to characterize those of us who wouldn't wear the mask as asymptomatic spreaders. Remember oh, yeah. that? Yep. Well, as it turns out, now you've got these vaccinated people who are just that because they don't feel sick, yet they, they can be infected, and when they're infected, they can spread this sickness, even though they feel fine. And that probably accounts for the fact that in countries like Chaim Witz's Israel, where 90-plus percent of the population has been jabbed, the, vac- the, the, the sickness is exploding, and the same thing in the U.K. and all these other places. So it's clearly the case that the vaccines not only don't work, they even encourage increases in sickness, and yet none of this is being acknowledged. And so it makes you wonder, what exactly are they up to with all of this? All I know is the longer I hold out against the jab, the more grateful I am, because the more information comes out that, that points out this is not performing as it was advertised, never, never mind the fact that someone's trying to force it on me in the first place. Yeah, in fact, you, you called to mind a personal anecdote, and I wrote about this the other day. A very good friend of mine, Guy Liftweights with, is a a pretty serious semi-pro cyclist. He gets together with a bunch of other guys, and they race. And you probably are familiar with this kind of stuff. They do these 50-mile rides, really hardcore stuff. I'm in pretty good shape. I can't keep up with them. Anyway, uh, this buddy of mine has a friend who uh, he cycles with who got the jab and who developed myocarditis. So it's kind of like a seven degrees of Kevin Bacon situation for me in that I now, I now have uh, somebody that I know who knows somebody who has been badly injured by these vaccines, which makes me that much, uh, that much uh, more determined to not be jabbed. Here, here. Eric, we're down to just a couple of minutes, but Mm -hmm. I wanted to point to an article that you just posted recently about uh, heterogeneous cars. And it it brought back so many good memories. Walk us briefly through what you cover in this column. Yeah, every now and then I like to uh, revisit the way cars used to be, which you and I are are old enough to remember and which many of the kids today aren't. And that's the main motivation that I have for writing these things. Today, you know, we all complain about how they all look the same, and they do, and how they're largely the same, which they are because of all these government regulations that have served to homogenize the way cars are. So you've got these crossover SUVs, which all pretty much look the same. So I pointed out about, how, uh, about the time when cars did not look the same, when you had things like big sedans with what were called pillarless uh, If you opened the front and rear windows, the whole space was open up. Can you imagine that? Oh, you yeah. probably experienced one of those when you were a kid. Yep, Chevy Impala. <laughs> I did, and just the nice big personal luxury coupes that used to abound. And then I fast-forward a little bit to more recent times, too, when you could pick up a compact pickup truck, brand new, for around twelve or 13000 bucks. And now they don't exist anymore. All The best you can do is a, a nearly full-size truck. They call them mid-size, but they're nearly full-size. Uh, that'll cost you twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars or more. Well, it's it's a fantastic article, and again, I I would direct my listeners go to ericpetersautos.com. I've got a link in the show notes. Um, Eric, let's uh, let's give your sponsors a bit of love here too, while we've got about a minute or so. Oh, sure. Well, the main one that I always like to tub thump for because they have saved me thousands of dollars 
<laughs> over the years is Valentine One radar detectors. Uh, uh, it's worth every penny to get one if you're a driver who likes to drive, because if you look at the math, the cost of that radar detector is a one-time hit, whereas uh, the cost of a ticket and then the subsequent insurance surcharges goes on and on and on. So I, I strongly urge everybody who wants to uh, enjoy the drive again to consider getting a Valentine One radar detector. Okay, and I'm going to encourage our, uh, encourage my listeners to take a look at the comments in each of the columns Eric posts on his uh, on his site. Great exchange going on there. Eric, thanks so much again for joining us. Likewise, Brian. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Want to send a shout out to uh, one of my sponsors here. That's the Sewing and Quilting Center.com. They're actually located in St. George, Utah, 779 South Bluff Street. If you or someone you know, is uh, is into sewing or quilting or or has any desire to do so or but let's say that you let's say you have a nice uh, sewing machine that you inherited from you know your aunt who no longer has need of it but uh, but something isn't working you can get it fixed you can learn how to use it they offer classes this is uh, this is a wonderful business that's been locally owned since 1984 there in southern utah oh and by the way they do embroidery, they do computerized quilting, they do uh, sewing machines that do absolutely incredible things. Now, I'm more of a needle and thread guy myself because that's really about the extent of my skills. I can sew a button back on. That's about it. I don't, think I, I, could, I don't think I could darn a sock. But if you want to check out the very best of the best from a family-owned business that is really making a difference, if you want to become more self-sufficient, this is something to think about too, making and repairing your own clothing. You should talk to my friends at the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George. You can visit SewingQuiltingCenter.com. There's a link in the show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Again, a lot of eyes on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, and it's not really much of a secret as you've followed this for the last year or so. The legacy media leans pretty hard to the left, even on a good day. But it's also no secret that the left itself hates Kyle Rittenhouse with the white-hot intensity of a thousand suns. Saw a great article here from Scott Hounsel that spells out the real reason why the left hates this young man so much, and I, and I think that uh, this is a pretty good analysis. It's it's not because Kyle's white, it's not because he's underage, it's not because he crossed state lines and he had a borrowed gun. It's because he showed the world exactly why a person might need an AR-15. Ooh, that uh, that is that's bad news. He says, there have been some very bad takes regarding the ongoing trial involving Kyle Rittenhouse. The then 17-year-old, who now famously shot and killed two and injured a third, has been a lightning rod of controversy. Ever since the shocking video of the shootings made their way online that night of the Kenosha riots over a year ago. Now, if you've been living under a rock, Rittenhouse was in Kenosha that night looking to help administer first aid to anyone who may be injured by the rioting that later did over $50 million in damage. 
Now, he also happened to be carrying an AR-15 loaned to him by another person there to help patrol the streets. After several threats from one person, Rittenhouse was chased by that person until Rittenhouse felt the man posed a threat to him and his firearm, causing Rittenhouse to shoot the man, killing him. As Rittenhouse fled, attempting to reach the police line a few blocks away, he was pursued by several others, including one man who attempted to hit Rittenhouse with a skateboard and then attempting to grab Rittenhouse's gun, which caused Rittenhouse to shoot that man, killing him instantly. When another man approached Rittenhouse with a gun in his hand, Rittenhouse fired at him, hitting him in the arm. Rittenhouse made it, late, Rittenhouse made it to the police line later and then to home. He later turned himself into police. Well, in the following weeks and months, Rittenhouse was vilified by the left as some white supremacist who showed up at the protest that night looking for people to kill. They believe, absent a shred of evidence to support that belief, that Kyle Rittenhouse hunted people that night, dead set on murdering those people he killed. Never mind the multiple videos shot from several different angles, including those that showed that Rittenhouse only shot as many shots as were necessary to eliminate the threat. Now, this kid was, of course, the personification of everything wrong with America. Guns, whiteness, masculinity, and, of course, anything that opposes the left's violence. So imagine the night in Charlottesville with the idiot white supremacists there clashing with counter-protesters. Except in the crowd is a young black man offering his first aid help to anyone who might need it. This young man is carrying a Glock 43. Now, while gun laws are different in Virginia, open carry is still legal in certain circumstances if the carrier is over 18. So for our exercise, our young man is 18 and licensed to carry that firearm. During the night, one white supremacist attacks the kid, earning him an immediate deadly response. As the kid flees, another white supremacist attempt to hit, hit the kid with the, attempts to hit the kid with his tiki torch and then grab his gun, causing the young black man to shoot him and kill him. When another white supremacist attempts to pull a gun on him, again, the young black man shoots, disarming the threat which allows the young man to flee the scene. Now tell me the left wouldn't be emphatically supporting him. And in reality, so, so should conservatives. The point is, if we're honest with ourselves, do we think conservatives would support this kid with as much gusto as we do Rittenhouse? Look at what happened when one white supremacist ran down several people with his car, killing one and injuring many of them. Were we conservatives united in rejecting that? Scott Hounsel says, hardly. So we can clearly understand that the left would see a way of uniting behind an issue involving a gun. After all, whenever it comes to the left, principles come second to scoring political points or winning against the right. When gun crime in liberal cities is brought up in gun law debates, they either ignore or deflect from it, not because they aren't opposed to those killings, but because they have no answer to the fact that gun laws failed to stop any of those shootings. Yet despite these issues, we can still see a place where the left would defend a young black kid taking deadly action with a gun. So why is it the left hates Rittenhouse so much? Set aside all the wacky hyperbole of white supremacy and whatnot, why do they want to convict him of murder, despite the case being extremely clear about the fact that it was self-defense? Scott Hounsel says, I can tell you exactly why. It wasn't the fact that uh, Rittenhouse was white. It wasn't the fact that he was there, presumably in opposition to the riots. It was the type of gun that Rittenhouse was carrying and the fact that it put a, on a clinic of answers to the question that the, the left always wants to ask, why does anyone need an AR-15? Well, in a few short minutes, 
Rittenhouse dispatched three threats without killing anyone else around him. He was a 17-year-old kid using what they would like to label as an indiscriminate weapon of war, which by their very understanding of the firearm should have seen Rittenhouse shooting everywhere and hitting nothing but innocent bystanders who happened to find themselves in the line of fire. But that wasn't the case. The majority of Rittenhouse's shots hit their intended targets. He wasn't being thrown all over the place by the kick of the gun. He was calm and precise using the weapon. There weren't Coke can-sized holes in people and mass casualties. What they thought would have left a trail of decimation was actually much, much less than that. But beyond the imagery, what was the meaning? What does someone need an AR-15 for? And the answer is this exact situation. When the society and the world melt down around you, as it did in this sleepy little Wisconsin burg, you may need that type of weapon to protect yourself and or your family. Now, given the choice of firearm, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be your own to make, but the use of the AR-15 and other types of tactical or sporting rifles in these situations proves to be a valid option. And Scott Hounsell says that's what the left absolutely hates about this. They wanted carnage. They wanted to be able to point at this and say, see, this is exactly why no one ever needs an AR-15. But they didn't get that, though. They wanted a talking point. They wanted a Sandy Hook or a Pulse nightclub. They expected a chainsaw, but what we saw was a scalpel. And not a scalpel in the hands of some skilled surgeon. He was a 17-year-old boy, and the gun wasn't even his. And Scott Hounsell says that right there is why they hate Kyle. They hate Kyle because he showed the world exactly why someone might need an AR-15. Now, I want to clarify just because I, I don't want anybody to misconstrue what I'm saying is, you know, this is, this is not the same thing as, yeah, right on, black rifles matter. You know, I, I'm, not to, I'm not suggesting high fives here. But I do believe that uh, Scott Hounsell is, is on target you know, figuratively, well, to, to say this. Why does anybody need an AR-15? Because he was facing multiple deadly threats and needed to incapacitate them as quickly as possible. I know it's an unpleasant thought, and none of us ever wants to find ourselves in that situation. But like finding yourself in a situation where a fire extinguisher is needed, if you find yourself there, nothing is going to do the job better than the right tool for the job. By the way, I have to throw this out there just just for the sake of, um, I know a lot of people have picked up AR-15s and, and found, you know, hey, these really are fun to shoot. It is There is no doubt in my mind that what made the difference for Kyle Rittenhouse on that fateful night in August of 2020 was the fact that he also clearly had training. Now, how much training could a 17-year-old kid have? I don't know. But in his case, it was enough. His trigger discipline was good. He did not point the gun at any threat, that, or anything that wasn't a threat, I should say. And the only people who were shot were people who were actively attacking him. The kid had good thinking skills, and that's part of the training. So get training. Don't just get a gun. Get trained as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Once again, I'm going to encourage you, please go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you would like to subscribe, I'll be more than happy to uh, shoot you an email every time I publish the show notes so that you can check them out for yourself. You can stick around and listen to me if you want to. If that's not your thing, I think you'll find some great information, though, to consider. And at, at the very least, you know, you can go through them at your own pace and, you know, on your own time schedule. And hopefully uh, it just helps you better understand what's going on around us. So of all the things that are dividing us, there's just one difference that really matters. And it's not vaccinated versus unvaccinated. Here's the difference. Do you support coercion over persuasion? Got an article here from Brandon Smith, uh, one of my favorite writers for giving an honest, unflinching take on the world around us. And he does a fantastic job of explaining how leftists support tyranny and conservatives do not. And this appears to be true at all levels of the political pyramid. Now, those who've listened to me know I'm, I'm not big on labels. And more often than not, I'll tell you that, look, the collective versus the individual is really where, where the dividing line comes down. But I want you to hear what Brandon Smith says, because he, he makes a very good point here. He says, one of the great semantic debates of the past decade has been the ongoing attempt to muddle the definition of left versus right in the American political sphere. For example, a lot of people who are new to the liberty movement, people who became active during or after the Trump campaign in 2016, have heard of the false left-right paradigm, but they have no clue what it actually means. And Brandon Smith says, if you think it means there are no legitimate political sides in this fight and the entire conflict is theatrical or manipulated, then you are misinformed. Now, here's his clarification. He says the false left-right paradigm specifically refers to the fake division at the very top of the political pyramid among elitists in government. I think he's right about this. There are certainly Republicans that are conservative in their rhetoric, but not conservative in their actions or policies. And they tend to support or side with politicians on the left regularly when it comes to big government spending and big government power. Senator Romney, would you like to comment? No? Okay. Well, just just asking. Democrats and leftists don't have to pretend. They base their entire platform on collectivism and centralization. And this is no secret. The only theater is in their motives. Top Democrats claim they're fighting for the greater good of the masses when they're actually elevating and benefiting a tiny minority of wealthy elites. They don't care at all about the lives of their constituents. Now, things change dramatically when we start talking about the bottom of the pyramid among regular people. The political spectrum is not as broad and nuanced as some people would have us believe, and the sides are much easier to discern. There are exceptions to every rule and to every group, but to say that groups don't exist is an act of denial. And there are also people who call themselves moderates because they think this makes them more impartial and more open-minded. They don't want to appear as if they're moving to one extreme or uh, one extreme end of the spectrum or the other. But ultimately, he says there are only two sides in this fight. Either you are in favor of intensive government dominance of people's lives or you are not. And the vast majority of people in favor of government tyranny herald from the left side of the political spectrum. They revel in totalitarianism, even when they don't necessarily benefit from it. I think this this may be, you know, where, where Karen <laughs> is found. 
Yes, it's time to stop pretending as if there's a gray area here, says Brandon Smith. Call the situation as it really is. The political left is obsessed with control over how people live, act, even how they think. Issues like critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, big tech censorship, the COVID lockdowns and vax mandates have really clarified things to the point that if you can't see the enormous difference between leftists and conservatives, then you are being willfully ignorant. Now, he says in his latest articles, he's been exploring the theme of the political left and their habit of wearing masks to hide their true natures. Many of them will support socialist, collectivist, and globalist policies, while also claiming they support freedom at the same time. Yet when they're faced with real-world decisions in terms of unilateral authoritarianism, the true character of the average leftist is revealed, and it's an ugly thing to behold. Let's just use the COVID and vaccine mandates as one litmus test for a moment. Poll after poll after poll indicates that an overwhelming number of Democrats, about 80%, applaud the mandates and continue to defend them even after almost two years of failures and a lack of scientific honesty. For these people, the COVID controls are purely political, and they often argue, argue in, favor of, uh, in their favor as a vehicle to attack conservatives rather than just saving lives. This is about, here's how we can punish our political opponents. The fact is, without their enthusiastic support, the draconian, the draconian mandates would not exist in the U.S. Now, Brandon Smith says some people will point out that the polls also show about a quarter of Republicans support some form of vax mandates. But he says here's the difference. Republicans and conservatives are actually willing to engage in honest debate over the scientific and social merits of the mandates. The vast majority of Democrats and leftists are absolutely not interested. They view any opposition as an act of treason and any debate as thought crime committed by cranks and conspiracy theorists. Now, that's a rather convenient tactic to take because leftists will never actually have to defend their own assumptions and beliefs in a public forum on fair ground. Because they can simply say all the evidence being presented is meaningless because it's being presented by treasonous enemies. Everything they do, no matter how destructive or oppressive, is thus justified by the assertion that conservatives represent an insurgency against democracy rather than honest Americans with honest concerns. Now, he says it should also be noted that the minimal Republican support for the mandates has been steadily dropping as new information is released, which contradicts the mainstream narrative on vaccine effectiveness. And as Joe Biden continues to use the vaccines as a means to gain power over private businesses. Yet support among Democrats is as high as ever. He says, in the, fa- the, the past few years, I've seen leftists en masse defend the indoctrination of American children with critical race theory, which teaches white kids that they are all inherently evil oppressors and black and brown kids that they are all perpetual victims that cannot help themselves. When they get called out, leftists then claim that CRT doesn't exist or it doesn't represent what conservatives say it represents. But Brandon Smith says all you have to do is read their own books to see that that's a lie. If you're willing to slog through the insanity of the book Critical Race Theory, the key writings that formed the movement, he says you'll see everything conservatives warn about when it comes to CRT is true. Now, this book was edited by Kimberly Crenshaw, widely viewed as co-founder of Critical Race Theory and Intersectionality, 
and it's also a book you'll find used as a teaching aid in most social science classes in most colleges. He says, I've seen leftists support BLM riots and the destruction of private property across the nation while calling them peaceful protests. I've also seen BLM take hundreds of millions of dollars from the very corporations and globalist institutions they claim they hate. I've seen leftists defend big tech censorship of any person or group that disagrees with the woke narrative to the point that conservatives now have to constantly self-edit keywords and phrases just so algorithms don't automatically derail their accounts. And so leftists can't false flag their commentaries as hate speech or medical misinformation. He says, I've seen leftists avidly support COVID lockdowns and the arbitrary destruction of hundreds of thousands of businesses as non-essential. I've seen them aggressively defend mask mandates despite the fact that red states which removed mask mandates had the same infection rates or even lower rates. Now he says I'm witnessing their fevered joy as they help push forced environment er, experimental vaccination through federal and state mandates using the threat of joblessness to intimidate those who do not comply. In the meantime, we've seen conservatives become the overwhelming majority of people in direct opposition to all of these totalitarian activities. And still today, I continue to see people try to argue there are no sides and that conservatives are just as bad as leftists. These people either do not understand what a conservative is or they're deliberately misrepresenting reality because they have an agenda. But he says the bottom line is that proof is seen in action. Red states are free. Blue states are enslaved. There's no way around that. Now, I have a link to his article. It's in the show notes. Please check it out. I will disagree with Brandon Smith on this one thing. I think we put way too much emphasis on labels like left, right, conservative, liberal, and so forth. But I agree with his basic premise here. Decent or indecent, I think, can be summarized in whether you are willing to coerce or force people or whether you are allowing them to make up their own minds, even if you disagree with their choice. Persuasion or coercion? Which one you tend to lean on is a pretty good indicator of where your character is, as well as your understanding of what uh, what a free society must uh, must be like. So hopefully you don't feel too singled out here, but I think it's an article that's worth your time. This is the Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a gathering place for wrong thinkers. That doesn't mean necessarily antisocial types, though you might find a couple mixed in here. But primarily, we're talking about people who are challenging the narrative that's being force-fed to us daily by dubious media sources and by well-intentioned but possibly misinformed people. This is a place for people who want to think for themselves to gather to find good, credible information not going to guarantee that everything you hear is the absolute written-in-stone truth. But I try to get as close as I can. 
And above all, this is about encouraging you to think clearly and independently as opposed to me spoon-feeding you pablum. Here you go, honey. Now, this is what you can believe. Here's what you're supposed to think. See, here's the difference between me and legacy media. I trust you to draw your own conclusions. I'm just trying to give you enough good information that you can make an informed conclusion of your own. So, if that's something that you can deal with, well, pull up a chair. Let's uh, let's have some discussion. You'll find that it's fun to revel in wrong think. It's a great way to claim your heritage as a free individual. It's also a great way to actually make a difference in the world. You know, the kind of difference you were born to make. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, GovernYourIncome.com, and SolarPatriots.com. Well, let's, uh, let's begin. <clears throat> let's talk about wealth. This is kind of a weird place to start, but I don't know if you have ever had the sense that uh, because you don't have lots of money, somehow you're less than people who do. Okay, you're not alone if you felt that way. I think we've all kind of felt that way. If you've ever, you ever been ashamed of the vehicle that you're driving, right, to the point where you're like, oh, man, these rust spots are saying more about me than I want to want people to know. I mean, there are a lot of people who really are uh, big on appearances. I think social media encourages this, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to play the blame game with social media. Bottom line is, it's time to take a deep breath and to consider how you define wealth. Now, Colette from thefrugalite.com, that's actually the website, the F-R-U-G-A-L-I-T-E, thefrugalite.com, has a very thoughtful essay about all the different ways that a person's wealth can be measured. And I don't know if this is, you know, maybe this is more for me than it is for anybody else, but um, if you haven't thought about this, and I mean really deeply thought about uh, how do I measure my wealth, this is some great food for thought. And Colette starts with the, with the question, what is wealth? And then she says, let's face it, we live in a society where money matters a lot. Now, unfortunately, the value placed on wealth in North American culture means that money seems to become a yardstick to measure people's relative value. And this can lead to people who have less feeling like less. So she says, I want to offer some inspiration for folks like me who may have less cash but have lots of value. So in this article, she says, I provide an opportunity to consider exactly what wealth is and some different ways to think about it other than the worldly water in which we find ourselves swimming. Given the times that we live in, this is not an insignificant thing. More challenging times may be ahead. Now, I hope that doesn't sound too doomy and gloomy for you, but I think she has a good point. Right now, economically, we are not standing on firm ground. And I think uh, most of us are vulnerable. In fact, I think all of us are vulnerable at some point to, uh, to where all the material things that we take for granted, all those trappings of success, could very easily be taken away from us or they could go away. And uh, we may try to console ourselves, well, at least I don't have as far to fall. But, you know, the bottom line is you might have to learn to measure your wealth in different ways. So the first thing she suggests is <clears throat> a little frugalite meditation for perspective and strength to face challenges. And I, I like this approach. She says, uh, your problems might be like your hand. So look at your hand, put your palm close to your face, 
Okay, that's all you can see, right? It's huge. It blocks your view. Take a step backward now. You see the sun, you see the horizon, maybe some trees. What size is your palm once you've stepped back a bit? Is it smaller? Yeah, for the moment, it's more manageable. And she says, I know this article cannot take away serious money problems. She says, I've been there. I felt that pain. You know, in fact, she has a link to a great book if you're dealing with poverty. However, it's a free book, by the way. However, she says, I'm trying to mentor, to offer a mental way, rather, to step back from that pain and take a larger perspective. Meditation is something that I practice regularly, she says, certainly not perfectly, but it does help me, and hopefully it'll offer you something. Now, from here, she goes into a discussion of what is wealth in our world. In these days of concentration of extreme wealth, so many people worldwide still go without. Even today, over 700 million people, that's about 10% of the total population of the world, live on less than $2 a day. Now, yes, indeed, she says, this fact may not help you pay that utility bill. That's a hardship this month. However, recognizing how fortunate you are in the global context could help you feel more grateful for the things you do have. Now, when considering the global context, she says it's helpful to consider relative poverty, which looks at people within a country and compares their relative wealth and absolute poverty, which compares everyone in the world across countries. So here are some of the numbers to chew on. As far as relative poverty in America, in the U.S., 10.5% of the population, that's about 34 million people, live in poverty as of 2019. For an individual in the U.S., the poverty line is $12,880 a year, or about $35.28 per day. Fun fact, that's the average pay of the average local uh, small market radio disc jockey. I'm just just kidding, but it, it feels that way sometimes. Being poor in the American context, or at least in the Canadian context, which she herself has lived, she says means going without and facing an enormous amount of hardship and unrelenting stress. Now, beyond considering... Living on less than $2 a day, though, she says, let's consider absolute poverty in the world context. Because there are quality of life issues, how many of these do you have to deal with? Little access to food and basic nutrition. Children dying young due to poverty-related factors. Limited access to schooling, or you can't attend because you have to walk to get water for the family. Hard to find fuel to cook for your family. This is a big one. No toilet or plumbing. So outdoor toileting is contaminating the local water supply. Little to no access to clean drinking water locally. No electricity. You're either homeless or you're living in a giant slum. And you own little to nothing. Okay, I may complain or I may stress about, man, it sure is hard to make ends meet. Or we've got a car repair and it's super stressful because it's going to be expensive. But none of those things I just listed are a daily factor in my life. And I think it's really important that uh, we we understand, have that context that uh, it could be worse, right? It could be raining. So how is this going to help you with your current struggles? Okay, Colette says, you may be going through a difficult time and you might be thinking, okay, I know these things, but it doesn't affect my struggles daily. This isn't really helpful. She says, I know this perspective won't be convincing to everyone. That's okay. But she says, I'm going to share one final statistic with you that got her attention. And that is, well, the average person in the U.S. lives to be 78. The average person in sub-Saharan Africa lives to be 60. Now, that kind of sum up the effect of absolute poverty. 
And certainly, she says, as 78 is an average, you would, uh, there would be effects to living in poverty in America, which she's not trying to minimize. But if you consider the global context, here's what this means. If you are born in America, on average, you have an extra 18 years to live. Now, what could you do with those 18 years? Can you learn something new? I mean, what can you do to enjoy those 18 years? Is there something you could accomplish in your retirement that's a dream you've always had? She says, being born in North America can be something that can allow us to connect with a feeling of gratitude and recognize that there are blessings in our lives in the global context. And there are significant health benefits to simply feeling gratitude. So considering where you are in the larger world context might be one way to tap into the feeling of gratitude in your life. And in this case, Colette says, I use this gratitude as fuel to look around and find a way to make a difference. Now, she has another way to connect with that feeling of personal wealth. And we're going to touch on that just the other side of the break. But I'm going to ask you to just take a moment and just notice for the first time or, you know, maybe maybe just notice, you know, deliberately. How much time do you spend comparing yourself to other people? Because that's kind of a dangerous game as well. Because chances are you're either comparing yourself and saying, man, my car sucks, but their cars are nice. Therefore, they must be better. Or worse, you're saying, look at my wheels and look at that rat trap that they're driving around. Because I'm so much better than them. Either way, those are unhealthy attitudes. We'll come back to the article just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Sharing a wonderful article from thefrugalite.com. What is wealth? And I know this isn't the kind of thing you probably sit around the dinner table discussing with the family, but... Maybe it's time to take a little assessment and just see how wealthy are you really. We'll get back to the article in just a moment. I want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. If you are lucky enough to be one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, I don't have to tell you what a crazy real estate market this is. It's by far the hottest market that most of us have ever seen. So here's the bottom line. When you find the home of your dreams, you have to have your financing squared away right now. If you delay, chances are very good that home is not going to be there when you come back. Well, this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She understands exactly what the lenders and the borrowers need. Most of all, she can make things happen when time is of the essence. You can call her at 435-703-4522. You can stop by 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So back to this article from Colette from thefrugalite.com. Now, it's been a while since I've actually sat back and, and, and experienced gratitude to look around me and just appreciate what I actually have. But I think she's on to something. Gratitude can be used as a fuel to look around and find a way to make a difference. Something that I hadn't really thought about that she suggests here is... What is wealth according to your values? In other words, what do you consider 
that makes you a wealthy person. And it's not always money. She says, beyond considering the global context, I think another way to connect with a feeling of personal wealth is to reflect consciously on your values. With so much focus on the material wealth around us, it's difficult to oppose these values unless intentionally. Which raises the question, how, to what extent have you defined your own values in your life? Now this means you're going to ask questions like, where does money and wealth fit into your values? She suggests maybe you sit down and figure out what are the most ten, what are the ten most important things in your life? What and who can't you live without? Who are the people who have been there for you in difficult times? Who have you been able to help out? In fact, she suggests take a few minutes today and write it down. Ten things or people that you could not live without. She says you won't regret it. Doing a personal inventory during a difficult time can actually help you see what you still have going for you, both in terms of personal qualities and people in your life. And putting material wealth in its place in your life can actually help you live more contentedly through times where money is tight. So if you feel strong in setting priorities with your life, you can stand stronger against the bombardment Uh, by the advertisements that try to make you feel less than if you don't own this or that product. She actually points uh, towards Daisy Luther, who is the one who shared this article. Daisy Luther blogs under the Organic Prepper moniker, and she is a wealth of information, but specifically Colette says, Daisy lives her dream life traveling the world, spending on what she sets as her priority. But in order to do that, you got to be willing to give up some of the trappings of success. Look at the big house here, huh? Like the Mercedes in the driveway? Yeah, I'm successful. Maybe there are other ways to show that success. So, she says, a final point I would like to leave you with is that only you understand your context. Society may only look at your pocketbook or what you own and judge you based on that. But think about this. Do you have a disability, either visible or invisible, that creates challenges in your life? Have you ever had to climb your own personal Everest just to get out of bed in the morning? Colette says, I have faced times of substantial disability in my life. And sometimes this has affected my ability to earn. One of the biggest lessons I learned from this was to have the same compassion for myself that I like to offer to others. Huh, seems like I've heard that somewhere before. It's got a golden rule feel to it. Others can't see the mountain I climb to get where I am, but I can take pride in my accomplishments and my ability to survive difficulty and thrive. I consider my strength and endurance to be a valuable kind of wealth. And she says, I hope you can offer yourself similar compassion regardless of what challenges you've overcome and what may lie before you. Now, she actually encourages people to uh, give their comment, their uh, comments below about, uh, you know, how do, how do you measure wealth? So I'm going to include a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. And if you have the time, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, boy, you're going to miss out on a total opportunity if you don't do this, but sometimes this kind of clarification really is helpful. 
I've shared this story with my listeners over the years. I, I remember a time where, um, and it was a time when I was watching uh, watching my income steadily rise. I watched my bank account grow every month. I didn't have to worry about whether or not I was going to be able to make the bills. Now, I'm not, I wasn't rolling in the dough, but I felt very prosperous, very secure. And the crazy thing was the, the more money I made, the more I wanted. That sound familiar? Yeah, that's it. It's because the the missionaries from the church of more were knocking on my door. (laughs) I just need a little bit more. But you know what? More is kind of a jealous God (laughs) and more is never satisfied. And it's 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 kind of a difficult position to put yourself into. What I had to have pointed out to me by my dear wife was that my kids weren't seeing me. I would be up and gone to work by about five o'clock in the morning. I would work through the day, and I was and again. This was productive work. I was I was doing well, but I wouldn't get home until just about the time that the kids were headed off to bed. And it wasn't until Becky said something to me about, you know what, you're missing out on a key part of your kids' lives, that I realized uh, I was I was justifying chasing the money because I'm doing this all for them. You know, I'm a noble dad, and that's that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm supporting my family and building a brighter future. But I had to reassess. Is this, is this the most important thing I can do? Keep building that bank account? Or do I need to spend time with my kids? And that's that's the shift I had to come to. To be okay to, to, to make less money than I could be making, but to be able to spend more time with my kids. And that I understand these aren't necessarily mutually exclusive things. But what I'm saying is the distraction was taking me away from what really did matter. And now here I sit many years later with the majority of my kids grown and moved on, and it's a little bit sobering to reflect on just how quickly this day arrived. My son is celebrating a birthday this week, and so we we uh, traveled to meet him halfway between where he lives and we live and uh, had a lovely uh, dinner at Wendy's, you know, <laughs> to, to celebrate his birthday, but it really hit me hard. How quickly that time went and, and how quickly they grow and they're gone. So maybe you'll understand. I still have a couple of kids at home, but it was a long time ago that I started to measure my wealth by how much time I get to spend with my family. And I'm not trying to brag, so please don't take this as a flex, but um, I'm a very wealthy individual from that standpoint. I get to spend a great deal of time with my family and with my kids. And, and I'm, I'm so happy for that. Now that's my experience. And I'm not saying yours has to be exactly the same, but I think if you take the advice of Colette from the frugalite.com and really evaluate, what is it that makes you tick? What gives you that sense of satisfaction? I bet you're going to find out maybe to your surprise that it's something more than just what your bank account reflects or the, the square footage of your house or how new and how awesome your vehicle is. These are all great things, and you're not a bad person if you have those things. But if that's where your heart is, you've got to understand at some level that those things can and will go away. Cars wear out. Houses break down and depreciate, you know, if, if they're not cared for properly. Just some food for thought. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's jump right back into things here. You know, despite what politicians may tell you at election time, here is a cold hard fact that you really need to wrap your mind around. You have very few friends in Washington, D.C. And by that, I mean there are very few people who are serving in political office there and and who serve within the apparatus itself who really take seriously the idea that government is here to protect your God-given rights and not to ruthlessly micromanage every aspect of your life. Got a great article from Doug Bandow that frames the situation plainly and accurately by asking the question, whose life is it anyway? His point being politicians should stop claiming our futures as their own. He says, Senator Patty Murray from Washington is looking after Americans. She recently insisted she was not going to let one or two men tell millions of people in this country they can't have paid leave. The outrage. Imagine a couple of guys going around the country preventing companies from offering paid leave for new parents. Oops, says Doug Bandow. That's not what she meant. She was angry that West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, though a fellow Democrat, refused to back the party's $3.5 trillion Christmas tree budget bill. He said the party would have to drop its plan to confiscate even more earnings of Americans around the country to hand off to those favored by Murray. So far from being a brave stand against tyranny, her position was just another example of borrow-and-spend politics. She wanted to create yet another endless special interest social program. And she was trashing the very person standing up for the underdog, the ever-badgered, regulated, and robbed taxpayer. Now, Bandow says, Murray's outburst offered a powerful reminder of H.L. Mencken's warning that every election is a sort of advance auction sale of stolen goods. In this case, the good news is the thieves had a falling out before they distributed the loot. In fact, they hadn't even collected it all yet. But the gang leaders are not happy. Before jetting off to Europe, President Joe Biden talked with the Democratic holdouts, most importantly, Manchin and Arizona's Kirsten Sinema. Manchin also said no to Medicare and Medicaid expansion, de facto Medicare price controls on pharmaceuticals, and a billionaire's tax. Sinema apparently opposed any tax hike. Now, the president appeared to remain civil. However, Bernie Sanders, the millionaire socialist with three homes, who was once an elector for the Socialist Workers' Party and took his honeymoon in the Soviet Union, well, he was less forgiving. He declared, The problem is not with the president. The problem is with members here who, although they are very few in number, that think they have a right to determine what the rest of Congress should be doing, and I strongly disagree. Now, Doug Bandel says, This would be shocking if true. However, the media, gullible, culpable, or both conveniently presented the budget bill as an act of God that only Satan would dare impede and indicated that blame for the legislative deadlock belongs to just a couple of people, Manchin and Sinema. Yet if the political balance really was 2 to 98, well, the spending package would have passed months ago. See, the two Democrats matter only because the Senate is split down the middle and all 50 Republicans oppose the bill. So Sanders is actually angry because 52 senators are deciding what they have, what they want to do, which is what majorities do. The few people who actually think they have a right to determine what the rest of Congress should be doing are the president, 
the Senate and House Democratic leadership, and members of the Honorary Congressional Spendthrift Caucus, like Sanders. Now, Bandow points out President Biden wanted to go big, essentially loading B-52s with cash and carpet bombing the country. But despite his supposedly moderate pedigree when he spoke to Democratic legislators, he emphasized that he desired the full $3.5 trillion and proposed a compromise measure only because he didn't have the votes. Representative Peter Welch from Vermont told the Washington Post the president indicated his total commitment to the full boondoggle bill. He reiterated that he co-wrote the bill, that it's in his bones. Now, Manchin and Sinema deserve credit for setting some limits on the prospective Democratic spending spree, but Doug Bandow says still, no one should confuse them with the guardians of the Treasury. In March, Biden, with the support of Manchin and Sinema, rushed through a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, even though the economy was already heading upward. And there's bipartisan agreement, including Manchin and Sinema, on a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, which is currently hung up in the fight over the social welfare package. And the latter, originally a left-wing $3.5 million, $5 trillion uh, fund fest, will only end up at about $1.5 trillion or perhaps $1.75 trillion. The scaled-back version pushed by the president. All that comes on top of about $6.6 trillion spent last year and more than $6.8 trillion in outlays in 2021. Isn't it crazy how casually we throw around the trillion dollars you know, here and trillion dollars there? Now, Doug Bandow says, <clears throat> after the Democrats' dreary election results, President Biden might just want a bill, not necessarily the bill. When he visited Capitol Hill to promote the infrastructure legislation, he told congressional Democrats, it doesn't matter whether it's in six minutes, six days, or in six weeks. Except that the longer the disagreement persists, the weaker the president looks. Barely nine months into his presidency, his popularity ratings are underwater, and he's being called a lame duck. He needs something, anything that counts as success. But unfortunately, the president is on the wrong side of the fight. He would keep piling up debt... Now, in July, the Congressional Budget Office offered a sobering fiscal checkup. CBO projects a federal budget deficit of $3 trillion in 2021 as the economic disruption caused by the 2020-2021 coronavirus pandemic and the legislation enacted in response continue to boost the deficit, which was large by historical standards even before the pandemic. At 13.4% of gross domestic product, the deficit in 2021 would be the second largest since 1945, exceeded only by the 14.9% shortfall recorded last year. So Doug Bandow says, look, in the near term, things will get better. But then deteriorating demography mixed with expanding welfare will take control. The CBO concluded deficits fall over the next few years as pandemic-related spending wanes. They increase in most years thereafter, boosted by rising interest costs and greater spending for entitlement programs, and reach 5.5% of GDP in 2031. Now, revenues remain largely stable relative to GDP over the projection period. So over the long term, the news is grim. Doug Bandow says debt to GDP will run about 106% in a decade, matching the record set after World War II. He says by mid-century, that number could be up over 200%. Even modest increases in interest rates would sharply drive up total federal payments. 
And if investors increasingly doubt Uncle Sam's ability to carry such a debt burden, well, then the possibility of a financial crisis will grow. The U.S. already includes individual jurisdictions such as Illinois that looked like Greece before its financial collapse. Now imagine similar U.S. government insolvency nationwide. So here's the bottom line. Doug Bandow says the American people have few friends in Washington. Although Democrats are on the offense, Republicans were wildly irresponsible when they last held the majority. Watching the Democrats this year gives new meaning to the joke line, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. So Doug Bandow says, remember Senator Murray. I thought that was a pretty nice uh, big picture view of what's taking place. And hopefully it doesn't give you, you know, that sense of hopelessness like, oh my gosh, this is even worse <laughs> than I thought. But just understand, the solutions that you're looking for are not likely to come from politicians. I, yeah, I'm going to say it. I expect the politicians to run this thing into the ground. All the time proclaiming we were doing everything we could to save it, but it's, it's like they, they found themselves in a hole, and, and the, the harder they dig... You know, with someone shouting, no, no, dig up, dig up. We got to dig up if we want to get out. It just doesn't, it just doesn't connect in their minds that their spending is out of control and has been for a long time. How many times have they raised the debt ceiling? So I'm of the opinion, and this is just opinion, so it's, it's worth what you paid for it, exactly nothing. But uh, maybe this is a controlled demolition. Maybe this is an excuse to crash the dollar and replace it with something else. I mean, there's talk right now of a digital currency, but with that digital currency would come some lesser or less desirable side effects, such as social credit scores, such as the ability to track every purchase, every dime that ever crosses your palm, the ability to tax people much more efficiently. If everything's digital, it's not a matter of, well, you'll just cut a check to the IRS at the end of the year and they'll, you know, uh, happily accept your check and uh, do your taxes. No, no, no. They'll be able to reach right into your bank account and say, yeah, we noticed uh, you had some happiness in your life. We just want our cut. Yoink! As they take it away. Sorry, that was supposed to be more optimistic, but I'm, I'm not feeling it. How about you? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Going to send some love out there in the direction of lifesavingfood.com. This is a food storage company. Well, not just food storage. They have other great preparedness items, but uh, food storage is the bulk of what they do. And I just, I want to testify that, uh, you know, there is some real peace of mind that comes from knowing you have a supply of food laid aside in anticipation that uh, perhaps a day will come when, uh, when you will need to turn to it. And it could be something more than the four horsemen of the apocalypse running up and down your street, you know, distributing pestilence and war and famine and whatnot. It's more a matter of you don't know what could happen in terms of the unexpected. It could be an unexpected job loss, a severe illness or something like that. Something that makes it more difficult for you to 
either spend money or to go to the store and, and find food. I look, I, I don't want to don't want to, you know, again, put that uh, that sense of doom over anybody's head. But um, empty store shelves are becoming kind of a common thing or at least big gaps. You know, it's the hillbilly smile of of retail right now. It's going to be an interesting Christmas season. My point is simply this. When you have something laid up in terms of storage, and we're talking 25-year shelf life, you have options. You are more difficult to either coerce or control when you can stand on your own two feet. So for these reasons and many more, please click on the link for lifesavingfood.com. Here's one added bit of incentive, and that is they will throw you a nice 25% discount if you use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. All right. That said, if by chance you are one of the brave few, one of about roughly 20% of the population who have resisted the VAX mandates, it's likely you're finding yourself having regular conversations with people around you who just don't understand why. Lisa Booth has a very principled and direct explanation of why she is not vaccinated. I wanted to share that with you because I think it, it may not change anybody's mind, but to me, she offers a very reasonable explanation. She says, I'm not vaccinated. And in a sane society, a personal decision like this wouldn't warrant a column or even an explanation. But we don't live in a sane society. She says, as a healthy 36-year-old woman, COVID-19 does not pose a statistically meaningful threat to my life. I have a 99.97% chance of survival. Why would I get a vaccine for a virus that I do not fear and that isn't a threat to my life, particularly when there is an element of risk from the vaccines? Well, despite this completely rational and data-driven viewpoint, the Biden White House recently broke its previous promise and issued federal mandates that will be applied to about 100 million Americans. That's two-thirds of all workers. For companies with 100 workers or more, Employees must be vaccinated for COVID-19 or subjected to weekly testing starting January 4th, 2022. Healthcare workers at facilities that receive federal funding are also required to get the vaccine. The Pentagon has issued a vaccine mandate for service members as well. In September, when the mandates were first announced, Biden said the guiding principle was to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers and reduce the spread of COVID-19 by increasing the share of the workforce that is vaccinated in businesses all across America. But Lisa Booth points out the vaccines clearly haven't accomplished that goal to date. So what exactly is the point of mandating vaccines that have thus far failed to stop the spread? Right? I just I saw this meme yesterday that was Kermit the Frog taking a sip of his tea and saying, if your vaccine doesn't work, uh, why should I have to take it too? <laughs> It's, it's a good point. Furthermore, she says, why is natural immunity being completely ignored and denied any relevance whatsoever when over 100 research studies, which, by the way, she links to, have affirmed its effectiveness? That seems at least a little strange. HBO's Bill Maher recently railed against the COVID-related hysteria that's taken over the nation. Marr pointed to a Gallup poll that found 41% of Democrats believed the unvaccinated have an over 50% risk of hospitalization. But per Gallup, it's actually 0.89%. 
So this raises the obvious question. Is the Biden administration governing by paranoia or based on the actual underlying facts? Now, during a July CNN town hall, Biden told the American people, you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. And this declaration came after a group of fully vaccinated Texas Democratic state legislators turned a visit into visit to Washington, D.C. into a super spreader event. Shortly after, CDC director Dr. Rochelle Walensky admitted, unlike with other variants, vaccinated people infected with Delta can transmit the virus. In August, Walensky told CNN the vaccines continue to work well with Delta with regard to severe illness and death, but what they can't do anymore is prevent transmission. Now, her comments were in response to a study that examined an outbreak that began July 3rd in Provincetown, Massachusetts, involving 469 cases. 75% of the cases in that outbreak occurred in fully vaccinated people, and there was no significant difference found in viral loads between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. A recent study published in the Lancet Infectious Diseases Journal came to a similar conclusion finding that vaccinated people are just as likely to spread the Delta variant as unvaccinated people within their households. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson actually pointed this out himself when he recently said, the vaccine doesn't protect you against catching the disease and it doesn't protect you against passing it on. Now, anecdotally, Americans have also witnessed an ever-growing list of high-profile, fully vaccinated people who've contracted COVID, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki being one of them, In the uh, Senate alone, fully vaccinated Senators Lindsey Graham, John Hickenlooper, Angus King, and Roger Wicker all have contracted COVID. Celebrities like Chris Rock and Khloe Kardashian have also gotten breakthrough cases. Now, to its mild credit, Big Pharma warned us in advance. Pfizer's chairman told Lester Holt on Dateline last December that he wasn't sure if the vaccine would stop transmission. Moderna's chief medical officer told Axios last November... I think we need to be careful as we get vaccinated not to overinterpret the results. He went on to say, when we start the deployment of this vaccine, we will not have sufficient concrete data to prove that this vaccine reduces transmission. It's unclear why some now seem so surprised that vaccines haven't stopped the spread. So what's more, is it possible that our myopic, myopic approach is outright counterproductive? Dr. Robert Redfield, former CDC director, now a senior advisor to Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, says 40% of the recent COVID deaths in the state of Maryland were among the fully vaccinated. Now, Lisa Booth says it's tough to know exactly what to make of that, but it surely isn't encouraging, at minimum. And even though there is some evidence that therapeutics like monoclonal antibodies can cut hospitalization and deaths up to 85%, that treatment is rarely discussed. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has established monoclonal antibody sites throughout the state. But he was originally criticized for doing so. At the Miami monoclonal antibody site, more than 60% of patients receiving the monoclonal antibodies are themselves fully vaccinated. So if the goal is saving lives, shouldn't we embrace an all-of-the-above approach like DeSantis has done in Florida? The vaccine helps protect the vaccinated from dying but it does not protect the vaccinated from either getting or spreading COVID. In other words, it seems clear to many of us that the vaccine is a personal health benefit, not a public health benefit. Therefore, whether to get vaccinated is a profoundly personal decision, not a public health decision. And not everyone is high risk. 
There's more than a thousandfold difference in the risk of mortality between old and young. Lisa Booth says the decision I'm making as a healthy 36-year-old is different than the one that Joe Biden should make as a 78-year-old. And low-risk millennials like me comprise the largest generation in the broader U.S. labor force. At a time when America faces a worker shortage and supply chain crisis, she asks, why would we sideline more workers? Many firefighters and nurses and hospital uh, workers and military men and women who also have natural immunity because they had to work during the height of the pandemic. So she asks, why again are we punishing them? Lisa Booth says vaccine mandates do not make sense, but most importantly, they are immoral. Why? Well, because the government does not own us. She says, I reject mandates because I believe in freedom. I'm praying the rest of the country wakes up from this psychosis that's taken over. Is it too much to ask for a little common sense and bodily autonomy? Now, again, I don't know if that changes anybody's mind, but I thought Lisa Booth did an excellent job of defending her point of view of why mandating people to take the vaccine really doesn't make sense. And I know these conversations are still going on because we're still having them in my household as well. You got to make up your own mind on this. You've got to own your bodily autonomy. And going along to get along may be the right route for some people, but if you are a freedom-minded individual, this might be the time to plant your flag and make a stand. Thanks again for joining us. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.